Over the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on the prophecies of Ezekiel found in chapters 36, and we've moved along into the middle of chapter 38 as we've looked at these events that are really very current events, as you all are well aware. Today we're going to continue with our discussion. If you are here for the first time, you've missed a couple of very important messages. I believe they're on our website. If you are able to go to ccsafeharbor.com and view them or listen to them at your leisure, that would be probably a good idea. I think it would be helpful to get a sense of where we have been, where we are headed, and uh, perhaps if the Lord tarries, what we are going to be able to do in the days ahead as we seek to represent Him as His ambassadors. That is, I believe, why the church is still here on this earth. That we are to be light in a very dark time. That we are to be His representatives. We stand alone among the multitudes. But the scripture that we have posted on the wall that you have before you, again, I'll read it in... You can read along, read along with me if you would. Thus, I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. What God is saying is, these things are happening for a purpose, a reason that He has stated here. And that reason is very clear. So that they, the nations shall know that I am the Lord. All of the things that are happening before us now were prophesied long ago in one form or another, and in the book of Ezekiel especially, the things that are going to be happening in the very near future, I believe, had been also prophesied by Ezekiel, and that's where we are today in our study. The things that are still yet to come. But I want to quickly review the things that have been taking place. Last time, we had a couple of maps um, for you, and we pointed out the various factions that are involved in this current situation that has been developing since October 7th. Israel will continue to do what Israel has been doing, and doing quite successfully, in spite of the fact that there are many in the world who are opposed to what they are doing. All over the world, there are protests against Israel. And that's as it must be. Unfortunately, that's part of God's plan for the nation of Israel to be all alone. The world hates Israel. And for just the sake of demonstrating that hatred, take a look at these following slides. The first one is in Oslo, Norway, a multitude of protesters, and by the way, protesters in this case are very angry. They're not doing things peacefully. People are dying. Swastikas are being painted on the walls of Jewish homes. The Star of David is posted everywhere. The posters that many Israeli-loving people put in various places throughout the world showing the people who are now in Gaza as hostages 
are being torn down by angry mobs. And all over the world, Norway is only one of them. The next slide shows you some other places. Rome, Italy, packed with protesters, angry mobs, tearing down, destroying Jewish property. Synagogues are being burned at this very time. Not only in Italy, but how about Canada, closer to home? Of course, you'd expect it in Norway and in Italy, perhaps, certainly in France and Germany, where many millions of Muslims have emigrated into those European countries, and they are beginning to have a voice, a very, very dangerous voice nonetheless, but a voice in European politics. They're persuading all of Europe to turn back to the days of Nazi Germany. That's basically the truth that we have to deal with. It's happening not only in Europe, but look in Canada. Our neighbors, a multitude of protesters. It goes on and on, but here's the most scary, I believe, of all of them. The next slide. This is Washington, D.C., We have representatives in Congress who have voiced angry words against the nation of Israel. Their voice is being heard by an angry American populace, as well as that which is going on in Europe. We are in trouble, people. We are in terrible trouble if this continues, except for the fact that God is in control. And whatever does happen either in this nation or in Europe or in the Middle East or in Asia, wherever those angry mobs are gathering, God is in control. And he's got a purpose in all of this. And again, I go back to the statement that Ezekiel made in chapter 38, verse 23, where he says, Then they shall know that I am the Lord. When, though, is then? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. This thing that is going on in the Middle East... As I mentioned in the past, I mentioned here again, this is not the Ezekiel War that's outlined for us in chapters 38 and 39. I believe it's a prelude to that. But there is coming a time of peace for Israel. Somehow, God will make that happen. Now, the only way that I can think of that that can happen and have the whole world against Israel is if God, by some means, makes it so. Now, I believe God has lots of options for himself on the table, if you will. Lots of options that he can perhaps make use of. We, as the United States of America, have proclaimed ourselves to be friends of Israel. That's a good thing. And so far, we've sort of demonstrated that friendship by not condemning Israel for their having moved into the Gaza Strip and doing the things that they are doing to try to get the hostages back into a safe place, and their desire to eliminate Hamas, just like ISIS was sought after and ultimately brought to its end, Israel wants to do the same thing with Hamas, and for very, very good reasons. The Palestinian people are not all in favor of Hamas, so many of them are, but the Palestinians are not just Hamas. They are a poor, oppressed nation of refugees. But they have been duped. 
2005, they elected Hamas. Israel gave them much of the land that they are now occupying in the Gaza Strip. They're blaming Israel for all that is going on. Israel is not to blame. They are. It should be so very, very obvious to everyone. It was pointed out last week in the book, Old Testament book of Zephaniah, chapter 2. The first few verses of chapter 2 of the book of Zephaniah talk about Gaza. It's the same area that is Gaza today, along the Mediterranean Sea, that small strip of land in the southeast, southwestern border of Israel. And you may put a note in your Bible somewhere, on your hand, whatever, make a note to read the first four verses of Zephaniah chapter 2. It speaks as though he were talking to this modern Gaza situation. Perhaps he is. It may be worth looking into and taking serious stock in what he says there. Zephaniah, by the Spirit of the Lord, was speaking of things that were happening in his day, but there's always, always in God's Word a prophetic perspective that for most of the prophecies that are given have a dual perspective. And that may very well be the case with Zephaniah chapter 2. But here in Ezekiel chapter 38, reading from verse 13, we'll be looking at the war that will be taking place. It is a war between Israel and several nations that are mentioned specifically. We talked a little bit about that the last time. And just briefly, before we read the text, I want to remind you who's involved. Russia is the nation that is spoken of in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 as the leading nation behind this invasion. Iran, Persia, in your Bibles, most of them, is Iran. By the way, did you hear that little ting? I've got my phone on for a reason. And every once in a while you're going to hear a little message arrive on my phone. It's a message that says something is new that's going on in the Middle East. It's been going on all the time since October 7th. It won't stop until they get their way. But remember, what's going on today is limited in scope to those factions immediately around the nation of Israel. That little red space about the size of New Jersey on our map. But we have Russia again, Iran, we have Turkey. Although the name Turkey is not in your Bibles, Togama, Gomer. Those are areas well known to be that which we call Turkey today. There is also below Egypt, the Sudan, which may actually involve Yemen. It's known in your Bible translations as Kush. Many translations also say, instead of that, Ethiopia. It's not modern-day Ethiopia. It is that Sudan region below the nation of Egypt, 
which again may include and apparently does include Yemen. Yemen is firing rockets and they are most of them being intercepted somewhere in the neighborhood of the Red Sea where we have battleships. We have the, I believe it's the Eisenhower that's going through the uh, Suez Canal at this point to beefen our strength in the Red Sea. Things are getting very, very hot. But it's not the Ezekiel War yet. It's just preparatory. Everything's getting put into place, including our own military, for whatever purpose God has in mind. But those are the nations, oh, this one mother, other group of nations that are included in this map and is over to the left, if you will, of Egypt, northern Africa, which includes Libya and probably Algeria. I mentioned those very places in our study the last time. Yemen is declaring war against Israel. So is Algeria. Who's next? Then they will know that I am the Lord. Read with me from verse 13 of chapter 38. There are certain numbers of nations that are not part of the battle that we haven't yet looked at. And 13, verse 13 begins with the mention of Sheba Dedan, the merchants of Tashish, and all their young lions will say to you, Rosh or Russia, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Sheba and Dedan are this very large nation known as Saudi Arabia, possibly including Bahrain and United Arab Emirates, which are very close to Saudi Arabia. All of those have been either expressing their intent to normalize relations with Israel or have already done so. In this chapter, those nations mentioned the Saudi Arabia area are asking the nation that is invading, why are you doing this? What are you coming against the nation of Israel for? And the answer is in their question. Have you come to take a spoil? You see, Russia is not Islamic. All of the other nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel are. There are two factions of Islam generally in the world today. There are Shiite Muslims and there are Sunni Muslims. Saudi Arabia and the Bahrain and United Arab Emirates are Sunni. They are what you would think of as more moderate in their beliefs. Shiites, on the other hand, are very, very radical left-wing Islamic peoples. Not all of them are Arab. The Iranian population is not Arab. They are Iranian, they're Persian. But there are many Arabs who are indeed members of that Shiite 
population or organizations that are closely aligned with the Shiite. Their one goal is to destroy Israel, to wipe Israel off the map. You can read for yourself the messages from Khomeini and others who have expressed that very desire. They believe in what is known as the 12th Imam. He's coming, they believe. He will lead the people of the Muslim faith in a worldwide elimination of Jews and of Christians. That's why they call Israel the little Satan and the United States the great Satan. They want us destroyed as well as the nation of Israel. So right now, the United States is one of the only countries that has voiced their position with regard to being a friend with Israel. Is that going to change? I believe it will. How will it change? That's up to God. And again, he's got lots of options available to him. Either by implosion, in other words, by our doing it to ourselves, because of civil disobedience and disorder, because of racial strife, because of the Palestinian question, because of perhaps natural disasters, economic disaster, political, education, you name it, there are options on God's table. And any one or all of the above could be used by the Lord to bring us down as a people so that we will not want to be friends with Israel, because we'll be so focused on our own problems, our own situation. Internally, we will isolate ourselves. That's one option. Of course, the other option is we'll be unable to. Russia, China, North Korea, Pakistan, they're talking to each other. That's never happened in the past. It's happening now. Among other places, those all have nuclear capability. Couple that with Iran, who wants to eliminate the United States as well as Israel. Although they don't have the capability now, who says that they won't join forces with those others that I had mentioned to maybe take care of the United States once and for all? After all, Russia and China are well on the way to being able to deploy hypersonic missiles. Up until the last decade or so, our nation has been pretty secure with our defense systems. We have things in place, both in the air, in space, under the sea, that served as a deterrent. With hypersonic hypersonic weaponry, much of that deterrence, deterrence, I can't speak today very well, I'm sorry, much of that deterrence is going away. In other words, instead of 30 minutes preparation time, it's down to just a few minutes at best. Not too long ago, China began sending balloons across the Pacific, intercepted on a couple of occasions. They were flying at somewhere around 20,000 feet. 
very odd for balloons to be that high in the atmosphere. China says they were just atmospheric scientists sending those out for the purpose of gaining information about the upper atmosphere. The one that was shot down and examined by our military personnel says that's not possible. The equipment that was on that particular balloon that most of us are aware of had surveillance equipment, not to be used by atmospheric scientists, but by military. What was their purpose? Well, because this is speculation, but it's realistic. Back when they were doing atmospheric nuclear tests, before they began to do them underground, they realized that exploding a nuclear device in the atmosphere caused certain problems. Much has been written about what is known as EMPs, electromagnetic pulse. As a result of a nuclear explosion, an EMP can wipe out electronics over a very large area. The ultimate height from which a nuclear blast could be used for that purpose is around 20,000 feet. Coincidence? I don't think so. Iran has been testing missiles. They've had many purported accidents in their launches. If you look at the data, almost all of them self-destructed at an altitude, you guessed it, of around 20,000 feet. Coincidence? I don't think so. So are we in for a nuclear holocaust that we can't deter? Again, God has lots of options on the table. One way or another, I believe the United States will not be a friend of Israel, either because we won't be able to or because we won't want to. But Sheba, Dudan, the merchants of Tashish, and all their young lions will say to Russia, have you come to take plunder? So we know who Sheba and Dedan are, but what about Tashish? What about the young lions? Who are they? Now, there are some who say that Tashish was probably that area very far from Israel at the entrance of the Mediterranean Sea, which would include places like Spain, and even as far away as Britain. But it says the merchants of Tarshish, not the governments of Tarshish. Take note of what is being said by, by Ezekiel here. The merchants of Tarshish will complain, along with Saudi Arabia, and their young lions. Well, what does Ezekiel mean by their young lions? Well, there are many who believe that that's a reference to the United States of America, Britain, and their colonies. It could be. It is a possibility. I will not say that it's not possible. I will just say this, that we have a reference to young lions in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 19. And I'd like to go there 
just to show you what I believe Ezekiel means by the young lions that he's referring to in chapter 38. Chapter 19 of the book of Ezekiel, verse 1 says, Moreover, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. Underline that word or that phrase, princes of Israel. This is who he is talking about in the following verses. Take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What is your mother? He answers, a lioness. That's the nation of Israel, symbolically referencing the nation as the mother of these princes. Then he says, She lay down among the lions, among the young lions, she nourished her cubs. She brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion. What's she talking about? Ezekiel is here laying out for us that the young lions that he thinks of are princes, are people of authority. Not kings, but deliverers in the case of Israel. They would come and they would be represented by these young lions allegorically. It says again, she brought up one of her cubs and he became a young lion. He learned to catch prey and he devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was trapped in their pit and they brought him with chains to the land of Egypt. Do you know he's talking about Joseph here? He was one of the princes that is mentioned as a young lion. He wasn't a king. He was a son of Isaac and Ishmael, Israel, not, not Ishmael, Israel, Judas, Reuben, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, all of the sons of Israel, twelve of them indeed. Joseph was one of the twelve sons of Israel. Verse 5 says, when she saw that she, what, that she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. He roved among the lions and became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. He knew their desolate places and laid waste their cities. The land with its fullness was desolated, but the noise of, by the noise of his roaring. I believe he's talking here about David who conquered many of the nations around them when he became king. But he was just a shepherd when he was called by the Lord. So again, Ezekiel thinks of young lions as individuals, not as nations. And so it can't really refer to the United Kingdom and the United States if we follow his statements with regard to who he sees as young lions. So going back to Ezekiel chapter 38, again in verse 13, we can read, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions, their princes, their people who are leading in those territories that are mentioned, men of influence, young lions, they're the ones who will say to you, have you come to take plunder? That's important. Again, I don't believe the United States is around for this. This and many other passages lead me to believe 
that the Ezekiel War is still yet to come. The various players are in place. The stage has been set, but the war has not yet begun. What's going on in Israel in the Middle East today is just a prelude to that. What's going on with all the protests that are being voiced all around the world is just a prelude to that eventuality. The world hates Israel, and that hatred is growing daily. And we're here in the midst of all of that, and I hope you're not wondering what it is that you can do. The only thing that any one of us can do is pray, 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 and do this. You see it, read it, and believe it. That's important. That is where we should be. That is what we should consider in these last days. For our responsibility, let us stand. Continuing on in verse 14 of chapter 38, he says, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, the leader of Russia, the prince of Magog and Tubal, and I believe, as we had mentioned the last time, that this is not just a man, but I believe it's probably an angelic being, like the prince of Persia, like the prince of Greece mentioned in Daniel. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord, On that day when my people Israel dwells safely, will you not know it? And again, that word safely is not peace. It is a cocky self-confidence that is being described here by Ezekiel. They will think that they have already established a situation that they can live with. And they're proud of it. They're proud of their ability to defend themselves. They're proud of their ability to stand as a nation. They're proud of their ability to defeat the enemy. The enemy is Hamas, Hezbollah, Yemen, Algeria, Iran, with their proxies, not directly. But all of them are enemies of the Lord. They're enemies of Israel. And my understanding from this passage and others is that they will not succeed. Israel will indeed accomplish their goal in eliminating the threats against them. And there is coming a day when they will be able to say, We did it! Peace. Peace, Jeremiah says, when there is no peace. It, in other words, will be not so when they begin to say, we accomplished this and we stand strong. Nobody can defeat us. Even though we stand alone, even though the world hates us, even though the United States is no longer supporting us, we, although we are by ourselves, we can do this. That's their attitude that they will have. That's what the Word of God declares. My people, Israel, will dwell safely. Well, verse 15 says, Then you will come from your place out of the far north. Again, he's talking now to Gog, the leader of Russia. Notice that he says, Come out of the far north. That's not just across the northern border into Lebanon. That's talking about due north from Israel, which, by the way, if you look at a globe, is Moscow. They're the furthest north that you can go as a country. That's who he's talking about. If you have ever doubted, that's what you need to see. He's talking about that 
nation. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. Take note of the fact that he says it's going to happen in the latter days. Ezekiel is very clear. It didn't happen any other time in world history. It hasn't yet taken place. It's going to take place. Because God says it will. A mighty army. Now take note of the fact that the weaponry is mentioned. Swords and shields and riding on horses. And many people think, well, today that's not possible. It's not very likely that any army would equip their soldiers with such primitive weapons. But it's all that Ezekiel knows how to describe. How else can you describe a tank or missiles, mortar rounds? How else could he describe artillery vehicles? He wouldn't know anything about that. But what he could describe is weaponry that he was already familiar with. Just like John in the book of Revelation. Doing exactly the same thing. Seeing what he sees as the end times approach, John records for us many things that are, in his eyes, only described by things that he's familiar with. So too with Ezekiel. Read on in verse 17. It says, Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them, Daniel among them, Jeremiah and others, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Hosea, Amos, these are prophets of old that have spoken these things are going to take place. Remember, the second chapter of Joel. Read it and see that the prophets knew something big is going to happen in the end days. And they always mentioned in those prophecies, these things that we're speaking of will take place in the last days, in the latter days. Make no mistake, he's talking about the end of our human existence. Jesus himself talked about it in Matthew chapter 24. But Jesus put something at the end of his prophetic statements in chapter 24 that is of great importance. He says that there's coming a time, and he's referring to another day that's even beyond what Ezekiel is saying here, a day that's known as the time of Jacob's trouble, that seven years of tribulation period that will take place on the earth. It'll be a time such as no man has ever seen before, Jesus said, and will never see again. So the Ezekiel war is a prelude to the tribulation. Just like what's going on in Israel today is a prelude to the Ezekiel war. Well, continuing on, he says in verse 18, And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. 
The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Take note of the fact that God is going to intervene on behalf of his people. And before we get into chapter 39, to read some again of what he says in that chapter regarding his taking care of the nation of Israel, take note of what he says he is going to do here. An earthquake, a very large earthquake, obviously. The world will experience the shaking that is going on. Isaiah prophesies that there is going to be a time when the earth will be tossed to and fro, a shaking. You may remember, I think it's probably 10, maybe 15 years ago, there was an earthquake in Peru that measured 9.2 on the Richter scale. An earthquake of 6.0 is considered huge. 9.2 had such destructive power. Very fortunately, it happened in the Pacific Ocean at a very deep depth. So the Damage was minimal, although it was great. But scientists actually observed the earth shaking. This is what will happen in those last days. Where this earthquake actually hits, it's probably going to be in a rift that is known in the area of Mount Zion. Possibly. But in any case, the armies of Gog and Iran and Sudan and Libya and all of those who join forces with them will be in that region where the earthquake takes place. And then not only earthquake, fire and brimstone, flooding rain, oh, hailstones coming down from heaven. He will rain on them his great anger against them. That sound impossible? With God, no. And by the way, it has already happened once before that we know of, recorded for us in the Word of God. Turn with me to Psalm 18. David writes in this passage that we have before us at Psalm 118. David lived... around 550 years before Ezekiel. And David says here in Psalm 18, beginning with verse 7, Then the earth shook and trembled. David has cried out to his God because of the enemies surrounding him. And he says, The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. 
Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. You see, everything that is recorded by Ezekiel in chapter 38, David spoke of in his day as God doing a work on his behalf. And so it is, my friends, God is going to do a work on behalf of His people once again. According to this book of of Ezekiel that we have before us today, these things will be taking place. Whether we're here or not, I cannot say. Again, God has lots of options on the table. He may take the church out before the Ezekiel war takes place. I'd love it if He does so. It may be that the rapture of the church would be a means by which God can bring about that which he's spoken of in these passages. I don't know. But what I do know is this. He wants to use us until he does take us out. He wants us to make sure that the people know that Israel is real and that Israel will remain his people, his chosen ones. He put them there for such a time as this. He put us here for such a time as this. Let it be known that I want to be used by God in these last days. I pray that so all of you do as well. The time is short indeed. And we don't know how many days are left for us. But I do know this. Everything that He has spoken of is being readied even now in this present hour. Continuing on, Again, the last verse of chapter 38. Let's just read the last phrase one more time. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 39 continues what is going to take place immediately following the destruction of this great army. He says, and this is amazing because chapter 39 is a record of the aftermath of a battle such as never described anywhere else in the Word of God. Chapters 38 and 39 are the longest set of scriptures that speak of a battle and its aftermath. And I'm not going to read the whole of chapter 39, but I want to give us all a taste of what God is going to do to vindicate His people in those last hours. So verse 1 of chapter 39 says, And you, son of man, talking to Ezekiel, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Their attempt to destroy Israel will fail and God will destroy them. I'd like you to first of all, before we move on, take a note quickly to what he says in verse 2. 
And it's important because there are some translations that are somewhat misleading here. It says in verse 2, I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. In the King James Version, instead of lead you on, the phrase is, I will leave but a sixth part of you. And what the King James is implying is that one-sixth of that army that comes against Israel will still exist after these devastating things take place. Unfortunately, the King James translators, I believe, are wrong. You know, I like the King James. It's a good translation generally, but any translation does have some mistranslations or differing translations from other translations because... Primarily, the reason is the Hebrew language is a very difficult language to translate. It can mean a sixth part, but that's a stretch. The word actually in Hebrew is better translated, lead you on, not leave a sixth part. Other translations agree with that. I'm using the New King James Version. You may be using the NIV or the New American Standard. Both of those have exactly the same phrasing. And it's a better translation than the King James was. So they all will be destroyed. And matter of fact, it, in verse 4, it confirms that. It says, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. So they will all fall. Not just five, six of them, but all of them will fall. Now, verse 5 of chapter 39 continues and says, You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So apparently, God is going to bring some devastating events against the nation of Magog which again is that nation to the far north. How he does that is up to him. There are many people who have speculated. And of course we have some technology that's now available to us to make it so that it sounds good on the surface that this is how God might do these things. But I'm not ruling out a supernatural event. And take note again of the fact that not only is it on Magog, but on those who dwell securely in the coastlands. They shall know that I am the Lord. That's the final word. Verse 7 says, So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Notice how often he's saying, they will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. That's the purpose of all of this devastation that is going to come upon the face of the earth eventually. They will know. They, not us, but they will know. I believe we aren't there for this. Verse 8 says, Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord. This is the day of which I have spoken. This is the day. The last couple of verses I want to focus on are 9 and 10 where it says, Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields, the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. 
They will not take wood from the field, nor cut down any from the forest, because they will make fires with the weapons, and they will plunder those who plundered them, and pillage those who pillaged, pillaged them, says the Lord God. The nation of Israel will survive. The weapons that they used in the field will all it will be remaining. And it tells us it will take seven years to burn up all of that material. Now you may wonder, well, how is it that they're going to be burning the weapons of warfare? Modern weapons? Are you kidding me? How are you going to burn AK-47s or whatever they're using? Tanks. Artillery vehicles. I don't know. But that's what God's Word says. Here's one suggestion. It may not be this, but here's one suggestion anyway. Holland, several years ago, I think it was back in the 70s, invented a compressed wood known as lignostone. You may have heard the name. Russian military has widely used lignostone in the manufacture of its weapons both in his rifles and other military gear, lignostone is used. It's considered to be as strong, if not stronger, than steel. It's lighter, more efficient, possible. Wood burns. So it's just an idea that I thought perhaps you might be interested in. But note the fact that it's going to take seven years for them to clean up the mess. And I'm not going to read the rest of chapter 39, but I recommend that you do that. Because it continues to talk about the cleanup operation. And quite frankly, it's kind of scary. Zechariah also is a good place to go to learn about some of the events that are taking place or will take place in those last days regarding this particular battle in particular. If you read Zechariah from chapters 12 to 14, a short read, but you'll see in there much of what Ezekiel is talking about here. And those that invade Israel, come against Jerusalem, will find themselves in a very, very serious trouble indeed. And I'm not going to give you the details of that, but do read what Zechariah does say. And I believe that when you do read it, you're going to think, as most of us who have very good knowledge of the Word of God. I think that includes most of you, but just in case you don't, read it and understand that we're living in a day, some of which these things that are written could never possibly have happened, but now they can. Just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. When George W. Bush was in office, A decision was made to stop a program in the United States, development of what was known as neutron bombs. A neutron bomb is different than a hydrogen bomb or an atomic atom bomb. Those are three different kinds of devices. The atom bomb was what was used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that particular bomb was a fission nuclear device. Fission is one way to ignite a nuclear device and to force the atoms to split, causing great amount of energy. 
But we got much better at it than that. And then a short while later, we developed a fusion ignition. So much more powerful. Dozens of times more deadly than the bomb used in Hiroshima. The Russians were the last one to test such a bomb in the atmosphere. It was the largest nuclear blast ever recorded, 50 megatons. And you can read about it. It's called... Oh, no, I can't remember the name. Something Boma. Anyway, 1950s era, it was deadly. 50 megaton explosion. Recorded. They limited its explosive power to just 50 megatons. They believed that it could possibly, without that limitation, have been as much as 100 megatons. That's a lot more than Hiroshima. Well, the next great invention was a neutron bomb. Now, the neutron bomb is unique in the fact that instead of hydrogen, it uses a method by which neutron particles, neutrinos, are dispersed very quickly, very, very quickly, much more quickly than a nuclear blast from a hydrogen or from an atomic bomb. And the neutrinos will dissipate much more quickly so that the radioactive effect isn't as lingering as would be the case with the other weapons. And actually it had another benefit. It destroyed flesh but left the vehicles alone and houses except in the immediate blast area. So you could take a neutron bomb and set it off against a whole troop and completely eliminate that invasion with one neutron bomb. Is that what Israel's going to use? Maybe. They've got it. The inventor of that neutron bomb invented it here in the United States. He left the United States and lived out his last days in Israel. And many people believe they've got that bomb. It's interesting to note that one of the IDF senior officers in Israel threatened Hezbollah with something like this. If you invade Israel, we will send a fire on you such as the world has never seen before. I don't think that's an idle threat. Are we living in troubled times? Oh, yeah, we certainly are. But God, don't forget those words. But God, He's in control. You have no reason to fear if you are His. One of the things that I've said more than once, I say it again here now, don't be scared. Be prepared. These things are about to take place. And no, it's not pretty. It's got to take place, however, because God said it.